Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. Matthew 27, when the morning came, when morning came, all of the, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him up to Pontius Pilate, the governor. It says when morning came, we've just got done, chapter 26 took place throughout the evening. They grabbed him in the garden at night. They brought him in for kind of a, a fake illegitimate trial in the middle of the night. So now morning has showed up. And this is the formal Sanhedrin trial uh, that comes. So Luke gives the full details of the second trial. And Matthew gives the full details of the first trial, uh, which doesn't make them in conflict. It just means they highlighted different trials. Luke's handling kind of the historical record. And Matthew feels like he was really convicted in the fake trial the night before, which he gives more detail on. They delivered him to the Jews. The Jews are under Roman rule, so they don't actually have the authority to do anything outside of Roman permission. So when it says they delivered him to the, to the, um, to the Romans, that they, that's why they're doing that. Pontius Pilate uh, is, shows up then, and he's the governor, and he's appointed in 26 AD by Tiberius Caesar, which means he's been in office for about seven years. That's a long time for a regional governor of a contested area. So Pontius Pilate was a competent um, administrator. He, was, he had a reputation. He lived in Caesarea, but he'd be in Jerusalem right now because, he's at, because of the Passover event, and there's all these Jews that come to Jerusalem. So he would travel to Jerusalem to be a good manager, to be part of there and make sure that the peace was kept. In secular history, the records or reputation of Pontius Pilate is that he was a cruel and a harsh leader. The reason he was competent is that they put him into these regions where there were rebellious upstarts, and he would quell those things because if there were any issues at all, he just killed people. The, Roman, the Jewish leaders then knew if they could just convince him that Jesus was an issue, that he would just kill Jesus and be done with it. That's typically how he works. So a lot of what we see in the record of Matthew, it seems like there's a contrast with what Matthew says happened and his reputation. He goes against his reputation a little bit here. Also, Rome mostly stayed out of religious affairs. They didn't mess with religious issues and theology. In fact, at one point uh, in Luke, they began to accuse him and say, we found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ a king. According to Luke, they had to come to Pontius with a political issue, not a religious issue. He's claiming to be king. And because of that, so uh, throughout this story then, uh, we're going to see that Pontius has to deal with this as a political or a secular issue, where the priests dealt with it as a religious issue. Uh, and they do that in, in, in order to get him convicted, in order to get him killed. Um, and then we, get, we go back to Judas in verse 3. Matthew's been interjecting the narratives of Peter and Judas throughout this whole crucifixion trial um, process. And we're, so we go back to Judas, verse 3. Then Judas' betrayer, seeing that he'd been condemned, was remorseful. 
and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what's that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, it's not lawful to put them in the treasury because they are the price of blood. And they consulted together and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in it. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Uh, The narrative is pretty clear on this. We can get inside Judas's head a little bit and just that question of, okay, Judas was one of the 12. He was a follower of Christ. It's pretty clear from this passage that he was remorseful and he brought the the silver back. Um, Judas, maybe, I don't know what he was thinking would happen when he brought him to the religious leader. Maybe he didn't consider that Jesus had done anything worthy of getting killed or stoned. Um, Maybe they thought he would just get a chastisement and he would have more money for the thing because Mary just spent all that money on the perfume and he was going to fill back up their food coffer. Um, Maybe he thought Jesus would fight back, that this would be the beginning of an armed rebellion. Like if they came to take Jesus, it would force the issue. Um, But all of those are kind of guesses. What we can see here is that he saw that Jesus was condemned to death And that's clearly not what Judas wanted when he turned him in. So as with any kind of situation of remorse, one of the things you look for is repentance. The difference between feeling bad about getting caught or feeling bad about the outcome of your sin and actually repenting of the sin are kind of two different things. So he doesn't seem to be feeling bad about the actions. He seems to feel bad about the outcome that those actions caused, that he was being condemned. Um, He does say, I have sinned, even though he knows it's wrong. He's sorry about the sin, um, or he's sorry about the sin. It doesn't seem like he does anything for the sin, because he sinned against Jesus. And at this point, you'd think Judas would try to run up to Jesus and ask for his forgiveness, to have an encounter with Jesus before the crucifixion actually happens. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he goes back, and he just doesn't want to benefit from his sin, so he gives the money back. This is one of those tough situations, I think, in the church. You get people that often will admit that they're sinners, but then they don't do anything about it. They don't actually address the people they've sinned against. They'll go to everybody else, um, but they, they're just sorry, or they get sorry that they're caught for something, um, but not necessarily there. Some people argue Judas might be in heaven because he claims that he sinned and he threw the money back. However, we don't see any follow-up with Jesus. The important thing about when we sin, all sins essentially against God. And we don't see him doing anything to get right with God or to pray about it or to deal with it. He's just sorry that it happened the way it did. Uh, John 17, verse 12, I think really ties up this whole issue on Judas. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in, my na- in thy name. Those that you have given me, I've kept. None of them is lost, but the son of perdition that scripture might be fulfilled. Judas is called by John the son of perdition. And that there's only one of the sheep that Jesus has under his care that gets lost. The rest of them get saved and they're on their way to heaven. But John really, I think, uses that phrase, son of perdition, um, to point out that that he was, in fact, lost. He never went to heaven. Um, So that's where we get to sit and look at these things. Verse 4, it says, innocent blood. Jesus lived with Jesus for three years. If anybody could give a witness to his innocence, it was Judas. So why did he turn him in? And he names him as innocent here. So even his betrayer names him as uh, innocent. Uh, Regardless of Jesus' theology or politics, he wasn't guilty of being killed. 
for words that he said out of his mouth. He didn't actually do anything that made him guilty. Throws down the pieces, that's a symbolic act. It's like throwing down the gauntlet, so to speak. Um, he just throws him down in the temple and walks away, and then he hangs himself. So if Judas feels like he can't go to God for forgiveness, then where do you go for forgiveness? If Jesus isn't the answer, then suicide seems like the next best thing. And I think that's a really tragic place. But Judas is, again, he's, he's learned under Jesus for three years. He knows there's a heaven and a hell. He believes in those things. And if he believes that he's unredeemable with Jesus, then there's no redemption. Now, Peter has turned his back on Jesus also. But we're going to see that Peter has an encounter with Jesus and he's redeemed and he's forgiven. And we would like to think then Judas had that option still. As much as he betrayed Jesus, he should have known that Jesus could actually reconcile that relationship if he went to him. So it's over Passover. No Jews can touch dead bodies. So Because if they do, then they're not allowed into the temple for the Passover ceremonies. So it's likely that Judas hung himself on this tree for about three days, and it would have hung in the sun, and it would have got ugly and bloated and whatever. And in the sun, flesh can caramelize or melt. So we see other accounts like Acts chapter 1, verse 18, that Judas's body eventually fell headlong and he burst asunder in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. It's really gross. Um, but given the date of this, it was likely that he would have hung on the tree for a few days. Either the branch gave out or he actually like slipped through the knot because his body just started to, to rot. And the sun would do that fairly quickly with the body. And then the description in Acts of his bowels exploding um, is also indicative of a body that's been bloating in the sun for a long amount of time. It's kind of disgusting. Verse 6 says it's not lawful. What's interesting with these Pharisees is they seem to care about the law when it's convenient, right? Deuteronomy 13, 18 says that the, the money for prostitution is the price of blood. You're paying for somebody's body. So they're applying a prostitution law in verse 6 when they talk about the lawfulness of it all. So was Judas then the prostitute in this situation? Was Jesus somebody? They were buying and selling a human body. Um, so it's okay to spend their money on Judas, but it's not okay to take it back, which in a way, indirectly, like they are aware of their guilt in this situation, right? They didn't pay for a godly good thing to be done. They paid for a, somebody to betray an innocent man. So the priests not putting it back into the temple is actually them condemning themselves and admitting that what they've done is wrong. And no matter how they're applying the law or how inconsistently they apply the law, it's pretty clear here that they're dealing with it that way. The field of blood, uh, verse 7, uh, it's unused land. Uh, so this potter's field, when potters make pottery, sometimes the pots don't work. So then they just crunch them up and they throw the shards into a small field, about the size of this living room. Uh, or maybe a little bit bigger. But what happens then is those shards uh, make it so that it's, usually they do that in a rocky field. Potters usually work in a sunless area, which lends itself to Judas's body. Um, but they would work in such a way that that field would then be unusable for anything else, making it really cheap land. Uh, so that amount of silver is a pretty cheap price to pay for land. And after all's said and done, it's a, not a good land practically because of potter's shards. It would not be a good land religiously because it would be tainted with the body of Judas. So you can't really use that land for anything. Field of blood. Verse 9, Then was fulfilled that was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the 30 pieces of silver, 
they valued of him who was priced and whom they of the children of Israel priced and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Um, so Jeremiah and Zechariah were contemporary prophets. Uh, it's interesting here because Matthew's quoting Jeremiah, um, and that passage that he quotes is actually out of what we would call Zechariah. At that time, they had a lot of the scrolls together, like First and Second Samuel were one book. So some of these smaller minor prophets, they'd put more than one prophet on a scroll, and it's likely that the scroll he's referring to is the Jeremiah scroll, which would have included the contemporary Zechariah in the scroll. Um, so some people say, oh, that's a huge mistake. It really depends on how many books they put on a scroll by our standard versus how they did things. Um, and they're, they're right next to each other. Zechariah 11, and I said to them, if you think me good, give me my price. If not, forbear. So they weighed for him 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, cast it into the potter, a goodly price that I was prized out, out of them. And I took the 30 pieces of silver and I cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. So eventually the potter does get the money um, because they buy the field of the potter and they do it that way. I think it's also interesting of the, who sets the price. And likewise with Judas, the priests set the price or told him how much they would pay him. So Matthew mixes in the commentary that they there is the children of Israel and he in that passage is the Messiah. And he, he connects that to what's going on here. So Judas essentially casts the money, it ends up in the hands of the potter, and Matthew sees that as the fulfillment of that prophecy. Pretty specific, an incredibly unlikely set of events all being fulfilled. One, the priest set the price. Two, the number was 30 pieces of silver. Three, it's the wrong price for a male servant, so it's an inaccurate price according to the law. And four, the potter then sells something and, and, and gains acquisition of, of some money in the house of the Lord, so priests would be the ones doing it. So that's unlikely because you're not supposed to do business in the temple. So all of these things add up and we're told hundreds of years before it happened, um, and that's who God is. John uh, 14, 29, and now I've told you before it comes that when it does come to pass that you might believe. The reason God does prophecies is so that we can believe and that we can know that God saw all of this ahead of time. It's none of it's accidental. So more compelling, I think, than the actual miracles are the uncontested fulfillment of all these specific prophecies, right? Because I'm not there to see the miracle. But I am here to read these prophecies that I know were written hundreds of years before, be perfectly fulfilled, and they're never challenged. This is the, the record of what happened, accounted by four different witnesses in the Gospels, much of it backed up by secular sources. This is what happened. This is how it happened. Uh, and to me, that's really, that's compelling. So just this idea that of the price of the silver. And Matthew, likewise, puts all these details in here to feed our faith and to feed our confidence in what we believe. Verse 11 says, Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and the elders, he answered nothing. And then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he answered him not one word, so that the governor marveled greatly. Pilate's in an interesting situation. Here he is with this person who doesn't act like a normal human being. He's not crying for his life. He's not defending himself against false accusations. He's not arguing. He's not bickering. He seems to be resigned to the fact that he'll take whatever they give. And he doesn't seem to be trying to influence them one way or the other. 
So Jesus stands before the governor. As much as Pilate was harsh with the Jews, it would be expected somebody wouldn't stand before the governor. They would drop to their knees and beg for their life. But the fact that Jesus is standing there because nobody's told him not to, um, and the, I think the Romans respect a level-headed, detached attitude. It's kind of the Roman culture. So this guy who's just, it, it's seen as a sign of strength when Jesus acts the way he does because he seems to keep his head about him in the worst of situations. And that's part of what Pilate's marveling at. There's no evasion. There's no pleading. He's not trying to impress the Roman prefect. There's no fanaticism. There's no yelling. Think of the yelling that's coming from Jesus' enemies and the mob and the shouting. And Jesus is just keeping his cool through the whole thing. From a Roman perspective, uh, Jesus is the guy that's got his wits about him. This is part of what they didn't like about the Jews. But here's Jesus standing up, not worried about what's going to happen next. Matthew, um, in the same way that Matthew kind of um, skipped one of the trials with the religious leaders, there's, there's a couple trials with Pilate. This is a longer than just a one-sentence affair when we look at Luke and some of the other Gospels. Matthew kind of skips to the end of it where Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? Because I think for Matthew, that's the, the core question. Note that with the religious leaders, they said, are you the Messiah? And here it's the king. They're going from a religious to political. So Matthew requ- records the final question because it's really the only one that matters. It's the one that gets him killed. Um, but it shows us the form of the accusation that the religious leaders brought. For Pilate to ask that question, it's because the religious leaders are accusing him of that. So likely Jesus has already taken a beating here. Um, and this could be a, a sarcastic, like, are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? You know, who do you think you are? And as Jesus says, it is as you say, that's full concurrence. In other words, yes, he's the king of the Jews. Yes, he's the Messiah. Yes, he's the king of, king of the Jews. So the same reply, it is as you say, same reply, and the only reply that he gave to Caiaphas, and it's the same thing that he says here. It's really his only defense is to agree with the people that say things. He waits till they say the right thing, and then he says, it is as you say. And that creates marveling greatly. In the Greek, that's thumadzu, or wonder, admiration. There's a connotation of respect that Pontius Pilate's looking at Jesus going, wow. Um, and he's likely never seen somebody not give a defense to their actions in all his days as a governor, um, like, like he's willing to die. So Jesus lets the events go on, and we need to remember that God, Jesus, has done miracles. He's powerful enough to stop any of this. With a word, he could knock them all over, the whole crowd. So that Jesus doing this willingly seems to be a... a, a, a underlying aspect that Matthew seems to highlight. He speaks the truth. He allows the world to do whatever they want. And as Christians, we're supposed to follow his example, even unto death. We speak truth. The world does whatever they want with that. Now, verse 15, Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing the multi- to the multitude one prisoner who they wished. Usually these prisoners were people the Jewish people liked. Like there would be good, decent Jewish people that got a little on the bad side of Rome. So he would, as a, a, a way to interact with the people he was ruling, he'd give them one of their prisoners back. So they'd probably take the most unjust situation and release that person. Uh, so Pilate maybe sees this as a way out. First of all, knowing and marveling at Jesus, the right thing for Pilate to do would be let Jesus go. 
Um, so the fact that he's not shows that he's trying to be politically savvy. And so in verse 16, he puts the worst possible. Uh, at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Now, notorious is a key ad adverb here, but we know that like Barabbas uh, is a murderer, Mark 15, 7. He's somebody that would have been um, not just murdering for just political reasons, but he's notorious because he's a sociopath. Like he kills people. He's a nasty guy. This is like Barabbas bin Laden. So he's putting the worst possible person in the jail up against Jesus, probably thinking, Pilate's probably thinking, this is my way out. I can see justice is done because I, I never follow through with Jesus. Therefore, when they gathered together, Pilate said to them, who do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. That's the thing in verse 18. He knew exactly what was going on. Bar Pilate was not a dumb guy. He could see through it all. He saw what the Jews were trying to do. And he saw that the real problem here was that the religious leaders didn't like that the people loved Jesus. And that envy was the core of the sin that's going on here. So, uh, you know, really he puts up, here's a decent, dignified human being, and here's a total scumbag. Who do you want to pick? Uh, and we know how the story goes. Um, Luke 23, 4 adds a little detail here with Pilate, too, that, that Pilate finds no fault in Jesus. So as the religious leaders couldn't find witness against him, like they had to get Jesus to say something himself, in the same way that, that Pilate declares, I, I, see no, I see no breaking of the law with this guy. There's no sin here. So we keep having these people trying to find sin in Jesus and unable to do it. So from the priests, hatred comes as much from en envy as it does from being trespassed against. For Pilate, the sin comes from fearing to do what's right, even though you know what is right. Um, so I just think that there's interesting ways in which both the Jewish leadership and the Roman leadership are failing to do what the good thing is here, or the right thing to do. Verse 19, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him saying, have nothing to do with this, that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. So the first thing that Pilate had was his own judgment. Like he actually ruled correctly. Jesus is being falsely accused. He should have done the right thing there. But now he gets his wife coming in. Like that's really God's grace trying to give Pilate every chance so that people can't say, well, God forced this whole thing to happen. God's actually giving these people every chance to get out of it. So the judgment seat would be the position of final judgment and at least with earthly rule. Uh, for Romans, this was the only justice that mattered was that which was given from the judgment seat. His wife comes in, again, interesting addition. Um, she assumes the counsel position of the wife. She comes in to tell her husband to not make this giant mistake he's about to make. Um, and at the very least, this moment of the wife coming in is memorable enough so that it makes it into Matthew's gospel. Like this wasn't just a private whisper kind of situation. And or Matthew was able to interview Pilate afterwards, which is doubtful, right? Because they start going after Christians. But the fact that Matthew's able to record and get this in means it was kind of a scene. You know, she comes running in and she makes it, you know, obviously a Roman pref uh, governor's wife isn't going to be like quiet about this sort of thing. Um, so the fact that she had suffered says the dreams weren't pleasant dreams. They were even nightmares. Like, so God would have sent these things. 
or maybe Satan was sending the nightmares and, and they're trying to warn off of, like Satan can see what's about to happen here and realizes that this isn't like what Satan wanted either. I don't know. Either way, she says she suffered, so that's either coming from God or it's coming from the enemy. Uh, most dreams we keep to ourselves, this one was urgent enough and, and striking enough to where if you think about it, this is morning, you know, when they all bring him, you know, as they wake up in the morning. She gets up out of bed. She immediately runs to her husband with the dream. So what kind of dream, how forceful is that dream that it would cause her to get up, run out of bed, put on her, you know, bare slippers and run out to her husband and say, you, you can't do this. So it had to be a pretty striking, vivid dream um, in that sense. Um, again, either the enemy trying to pull back from this crucifixion and save salvation of the planet thing, or it's God mercifully giving every warning he possibly can to Pilate. Um, so Pilate ignores Jesus. He, or, he ignores his own judgment. He ignores justice or the law. And worst, <laughs> he ignores his wife. And that's the great mistake of many men. They ignore their wife. Um, but he does. He goes forward. Verse 20, the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. And the Pilate said to them, what, shall, what then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said to him, let him be crucified. Proper uh, execution in Jewish law is stoning. So when we see all these prophecies that talk about crucifixion, one would wonder how that would happen, that under Jewish rule it should be a stoning. So a few days ago, these same people were singing Hosanna in the highest. That didn't seem to stick, and they all said um, that they did this. As, I, think, I think this is a point for Matthew. They were cheering him on as Messiah, and now they all chose him to be killed, and they, they wanted the worst possible killing from him. It's not just the Jewish leaders. It's not just the Romans. It's all of Israel. They all said that this is what should happen. They're all guilty of what happens here, including the Romans. So it's not something where we should then put that just on the Jewish people. The Romans are part of this too. Barabbas, ironically, is the son of the father. So they choose the false son of the father over the real son of the father. Just an odd name that pops up right there. People, I think, still make this choice. They choose the false, destructive lifestyle over the one that can help them. So the sinner is the most immediate person. Literally, Barabbas actually is the first person, you could argue, Jesus dies in the place of this sinner. The worst of sinners gets Jesus literally dying in his place on the cross. They say, let him be crucified. When mobs get going and emotions take over, they tend to call for the extremes. We're seeing that in the news right now, right? Um, that, that people get upset about things and then they think that justifies worse behavior than what they're upset about in the first place. It's a curse to be hung on a tree. What the Jews are wishing on Jesus is that he's cursed entirely. So the, the, the crucifixion that they're asking for is one that in their religious code would be a cursed death. Then the governor says, why? What evil has he done? So this is interesting that Pilate actually stops here. He can't hold back. Like at this point, he's just like, what is your guys' problem? I think Pilate recognizes there's a spirit moving amongst this crowd of people, that there's something that doesn't make sense here. This seems to be a spiritual battle because it doesn't make sense any other way. So he literally says, what evil has this guy done? He hasn't done anything. But they cried out all the more saying, let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, 
but rather that a tumult was rising. He took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. You only do this, I think, you only do what Pilate just did here if you know that what's happening is unjust and wrong. So um, this behavior, Pilate's reputation is one that he usually has no qualms about killing people. Any sort of problem, any sort of issue, he just whacks them. Um, so when he does this, like, he has fully interrogated Jesus and he really just sees no problems here. So Pilate's sin is that he relents to the people even though he knows he should take a stand. And Pilate's the kind of guy who generally doesn't care what the crowd thinks. You know, according to Roman records, he's generally, he's kind of, an, he does what he needs to do to keep the peace. So he's forever then tied to and responsible for killing Jesus at the end of the day, it wasn't the Jewish people that made the final call. It was Pontius Pilate who made the final call. He's the one that ordered the death. Crucified under Pontius Pilate um, now becomes part of our faith statement, like we say that forevermore. Uh, he was not crucified under the Jewish Sanhedrin. Um, they delivered him to Pilate, but they weren't the ones responsible for killing him. He says, I'm innocent of, uh, I'm innocent of the blood. That's an odd contrast of authority, um, trying to d dictate who gets the blame. Like he says he's innocent of it, but then he lets it happen. So this is, again, a lot of this is, there's a spirit with Pilate too. Something's going on here. He calls him a just person. I think that's important for Matthew just thematically, but it's also really key for us. He's now been declared innocent both by the religious leaders who said that was blood money and he's been declared innocent directly by the Roman leadership, which was the final authority who said, are you the king of the Jews? And he says, it's as you say. So the Roman authority has declared him the king of the Jews. And Jesus agreed with him. <laughs> so he's being killed because he's the Messiah and because he's the king. For no other reason. Those are the final accusations, the things that he is being killed over, um, and the final declaration on if he's innocent or guilty um, from the authority that matters from the judgment seat. Verse 24, Jesus is a just person. He's done no wrong. So the Coptic church claims that Pilate and his wife became believers and followed Jesus after the resurrection. Um, so in that, they argue that's where Matthew gets the stories and maybe it was the dream that the wife had that all of a sudden they turn. But Pilate's halfway to salvation when he recognizes Jesus is just and true. Like he sees the true character of Jesus. Um, there's really no record of Pilate after he's removed from office. He sat in office for some time. He's fairly competent again. Uh, he's ordered to, to Rome to talk about a Samaritan revolt that happens uh, a few years after the resurrection. Um, the emperor dies, dies before Pontius Pilate gets to Rome to report on the rebellion. And there's no further mention of Pilate. Like the next emperor that takes over, I, I don't, the records are probably not as good. There's no record that Pilate goes before the new emperor of Rome ever. He just disappears. Like his wife and him just give it all up and go somewhere. So the Coptic church, their claim that he became a believer, we can't um, disprove that, nor can it be proved. There's no, honestly, the guy just falls off the map and we see no more about him, which is odd in Roman history. Usually there's records of all that and there's not in the case of Pilate and his wife. And all the people answered and said, his blood be on us and on our children. So Pilate again said, 
this blood isn't on me, and the Jewish people claim it. This is where a ton of anti-Semitism comes from, is that they, it's not just on them and on their... It's an odd vow to make. Why would, as the Jewish people, you want the blood of an innocent man to be on you? Knowing what we know about the law, this is a crazy thing to say. But again, mobs get crazy. That spirit of mob, the spirit, I think, of the enemy comes up and people say things they didn't mean to say but are actually incredibly true. Um, so then he releases Barabbas to them and when they scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So in the flesh, they're taking the guilt for this on all of the people and it was all the people that answered. So that would be Jews, but it would also be Romans. It would also be Samaritans. It would be whoever's in the crowd for Passover. It would be a big crowd of people. Um, so the Gentile authority, the Jewish people are complicit. That's Jews and Gentiles both caused Jesus to die. And they're fully guilty under the law of heaven and earth, and they've claimed the blood on their own shoulders. So another way to look at this is if, if you could have anybody's blood on you, it would be Jesus' blood. So in some ways, as a special people, um, all the people answering saying his blood be on us and our children, they're actually asking for the greatest blessing ever with that line. They just don't know it. They think that they're mocking Jesus and that it doesn't matter, but the words coming out of their mouth are requesting the greatest gift anybody could have, and that's the blood of Jesus Christ. So that said, I'll come back on this. Like Everyone's accountable for Jesus' death. Matthew says multiple times it's all the people that are involved in this. Um, it is hard to ignore that since the death of, and resurrection of Jesus, that the Jewish people have not had it easy on the planet Earth. Um, they've been uh, picked out for elimination, um, and there is clearly a struggle there or a removal of God's blessing. Um, it, it, it's, they are God's special people, and, and it's hard to take all your theology and base it on one verse. Um, but there is that idea of, like, when they said, his blood be on us and our children, were they in some way, like, cursing themselves in this process too? Um, that said, the uh, revelation makes it very clear that the Jewish people will come back to following Jesus as their Messiah, um, that that's part of what's happening in the future. Um, and then, again, the guilt get, goes both ways. It says, when he had scourged Jesus, the Jews didn't whip Jesus, the Romans did. And they did it upon the order of Pontius Pilate. He ordered the punishment, not the Jews. So again, I think what Matthew's trying to do here isn't to create 2,000 years of anti-Semitism. He's trying to make the point that all of the people, Jews and Gentiles, were part of this. The world, as they knew it in that part of the world, was responsible for Jesus' death and crucifixion. So the scourging is a, a Roman. They, they took this form of punishment from the Assyrians. Some argue it that, that as with crucifixion, it, it came from the Persians before that. Uh, they'd take a leather whip with lots of ends on it, and each end of the whip would have a piece of bone or metal woven into it. So when it hit the back, it wouldn't just hit and bruise. When they pulled the whip away, it would cut and rip the flesh with it. So a good scourging uh, meant that most of the skin on the back was taken to ribbons. It's an extremely painful process. People would die just from scourgings. So, um, However, the back bleeds less than the rest of the body. And because of the rib cage and the spine, it protects the inner organs. So people can take a scourging and they can survive it. Uh, which Jesus does. Uh, it's typical of all Roman executions. The point of the scourging, and this is, I think, where Jesus, this isn't good for Jesus. 
The point of the scourging was that Romans wanted to clear the books. This was a bureaucratic empire. If they could get people to confess of their sins, then they didn't have to do a court case. So every time they would whip the person, they would ask if there was anything to confess. The problem for Jesus is he had nothing to confess. So each whipping, they would start easy and they'd get harder and harder and harder up until they did the full measure of the, the scourging. Criminals would confess and the scourging would get lighter and lighter and lighter. Like, we'll take it easy on you if you're confessing stuff. And the more stuff they would confess, the more the Roman books would get cleared of crimes that were unsolved. So, you know, confess of everything you can and the whipping gets less and less. Jesus not being a criminal and not saying a word takes the full measure of the scourging. Uh, that would have been, they would have been going as hard as they could by the end. So there's, there's entire books written on the, the brutality of the crucifixion. Uh, there's a whole movie on it from kind of a Catholic perspective. They really like to emphasize how hard it was. I think we can just say, this really hurts. And this would have been extremely painful. And, but Matthew doesn't seem to focus on the pain and the agony of it. He just tells us that it happened and his readers were supposed to know this is not good. And, and, and again, he doesn't glorify the evil. He keeps moving on. And so will we. Verse, verse 27. However, when we get to Luke, however, we will get into the medical details and we will get into all of what happens to the body because Luke, the physician and doctor, I think, does highlight more of those things. Um, but in the book of Matthew, uh, we're talking about kingship here um, and kingdom. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. So no Jews involved at this point auxiliaries from all over the empire would be the garrison at the praetorium. These are the elite Roman soldiers. They'd be the ones that came with Pontius Pilate from Caesarea to Jerusalem. So they're the crack troops. The praetorium would be like the courthouse, and a garrison would have roughly 600 men in it, so six centurions. Um, uh, the garrison was likely stocked with, with that many men. So they gathered all these Roman soldiers around him, and a part of the scourging and part of the punishment, too, was to let the rest of the world know that this won't be tolerated in the Roman Empire. So when they bring him to the Praetorium, there's a different kind of lesson. This isn't necessarily for the whole crowd, right? But it is to teach the Roman soldiers, this is what we do with people that think they're ruling themselves. This is what the Roman Empire does to get submission from people. So in verse 28, they strip him. They put a scarlet robe on him. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, stripped. Oh, stripped. Um, so usually when we see pictures of Jesus, he he's kindly has a loincloth on. Um, we have to, you know, when we're reading this as grown-ups, we have to know that when it says in verse 28 that they stripped him, the point was humiliation. The point was that all his parts were hanging out there wasn't a loincloth usually. Uh, Roman law wanted nobody to admire criminals or people that would rise against Rome. So they wanted to make this as distasteful as possible. So, and again, from the Roman attitude, they were offering all these people they conquered, Rome was offering them the gift of civilization, the gift of safety, order. They built roads, they built coliseums. They give you all of this safety and how, why would anyone dare to reject Roman rule? Like, who, what kind of uncivilized, horrible person rejects the safety of everyone around them? And that's what Rome pretended to offer. They offered safety. 
They offered like a civic kind, ordered commerce where everyone could prosper. So how dare you challenge that? And there's a great rage that would come out of a Roman when they realize they're dealing with somebody challenging Roman rule. The scarlet robe, the crown of thorns, the reed in his right hand, which is like a scepter, all signs of authority and rule. The irony here is they're actually crowning Jesus as king when they do this. And then the words out of their mouth, they think they're mocking him, but the, the Roman authorities, the people who had the governing authority, give him the title king of the Jews. This is really interesting because the Jews don't have that authority to offer. They've lost their self-rule and their sovereignty. The only people that could give Jesus the title king are the people that are ruling the land. So when they do this, the whole Roman garrison comes out and confirms through mockery, but the words coming out of their mouth are, are absolutely true. They, they actually bow down before him while they do it. Again, they think they're mocking the guy, but the only people with the authority are doing it. And Pontius Pilate says, see to it. So he passed that authority to these Roman soldiers. So they bow a knee, they say, uh, hail king of the Jews, and they give honor to him in, in the most mocking way that they can. They give him a, probably a cheap scarlet robe. The crown of thorns is, again, cheap. <laughs> and, they, um, and then the reed in his right hand would be weak. And they, so they're giving him signs of authority, but they're all cheap and weak and, and, and uh, painful. Despite the mockery, Jesus gets crowned. He gets robed. He gets a scepter put in his hand. All of the governing authority bow before him, and with their mouths they say, Hail, King of the Jews. Like I, How Matthew's setting this up is, I think, fascinating. Like They do everything they need to do to make Jesus have legitimate civic authority. They just think they're doing it in mockery. But the fact is they actually go through all the steps. So if he had the strength at this point, he's probably beaten to a pulp. Beyond recognition, one of the gospel writers says, if he still had the strength, he might turn to the Roman soldiers and say, it is as you say, as he said to Caiaphas and as he said to Pilate. You're speaking the truth. I am the king of the Jews. But their mockery then turns to cruelty as it normally does. You know, I think it's funny because they're mocking Jesus in that you don't look like a king. You know, you don't look like a very powerful king at all. But from God's perspective, how powerful is Pontius Pilate? You know, from God's perspective you know how weak does the caesar look from god's perspective like the president of the united states is not that big of a deal he's just a man and so the difference between this mocked king that they set up isn't isn't that great between the highest and most plumaged king that we can think of from god's perspective it's all just humans either way verse 30 they spat on him that's how you know, that's not a nice thing to do in any generation or any culture it's a universal symbol of disgust and disrespect. He took the reed and struck him on the head. Anne took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off of him and put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. They spat on him. Soldiers were commanded to execute him, but they were not commanded to spit on him. So they're actively taking part in this rejection of Jesus, who they just made king. They strike him, the word there in the Greek is in the imperfect tense, which means they struck him over and over and over again. Struck him hard, they struck him light, they struck him, there's no time limit on it, there's no number with it, it's imperfect. 
So the particular narrative came to Matthew, likely by one of the soldiers that was later converted, who's watching Jesus' behavior as this happened. Even the silent Jesus being beaten is a ministry to the moving hearts of the people around him. And for 2,000 years, as martyrs get killed, it's often their attackers that get saved because they see that there's something different about a Christian when they're in the worst of situations. Today, it's just a, it's not a lot different today. We have tons of people in the world today that just mock God. They mock Jesus Christ. They take light something that they should take seriously. They pretend to love God and then they live for themselves. It makes an absolute mockery of God. So we can't necessarily look at these soldiers and think, well, look at how horrible they were. I walk around and, and, and I meet tons of people that do the same thing today with their mouths. They led him away. In Roman society, this leading away is a public display. They put the, the criminal on parade and they try to, they don't take a direct route to the execution, they take an indirect route. So they weave this person through the city so everybody can see what happens to people who cross Rome. Or don't with the message of don't cross Rome or we'll cross you. Right? It's that's that's the idea that we're getting across. It's a warning. They would take a herald and they'd generally put someone in front of the criminal yelling or announcing. Uh, just like a herald would make way for the king, they'd say, make way for Jesus, and then they would say what the person's guilty of. So they would march this guy through the street, led him away is where I get this from, and the criminal would carry their own cross, but the herald would yell in front of them their name and the, what they're guilty of. And what Jesus is guilty of is that he's king of the Jews. So they would be shouting throughout all of Jerusalem, make way for Jesus, king of the Jews. And he'd be walking behind him with a crossbar. It'd be about 100 pounds. Typically, they'd be naked, but in verse 31, it says they put their clothes back on him. And I wonder if that was like, as the soldiers finished their mockery of Jesus, that putting his clothes back on him was a sign of mercy or grace? Or God wanted him to be clothed when he went to the cross? I think this is a really interesting idea. Maybe this is where they put the loincloth back on him. But it would have been very uncommon for the Roman soldiers to return to the criminal their clothing. And then they gamble over his clothing at the cross, remember? So this, this idea that they put, uh, there must have been somebody in there that said cover him up and do it. Matthew 16, 24, Jesus told his disciples, if anybody desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The follow me there is the route that he would take between the judgment and the, and the crucifixion, this weaving route with the herald in front of him probably a reference to this walk that Jesus was taking. We either pick up our cross and we struggle and battle step by step, dealing with our flesh, dealing with the enemy day by day, or, or we stand in the crowds and we watch the people that do. And we're hanging with the cowards and the mockers and the haters. There's no neutral people. Either you're walking with Jesus or you're not walking at all. If we want to follow Jesus, it's, it's, it's all in or don't bother. And, and the fact that this is the spot Jesus was talking about, this is the walk we got to take, is, is the path to heaven. And there's some rough spots in that walk. It's just powerful. And then we are introduced to the first person who takes up his cross and follows him. And he's at, it's actual literal. Verse 32, now as they came out, so all the people of the town would come out to see Jesus, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. And they compelled him to bear his cross. Cyrene is a town about 800 miles away to the south. Uh, so this would be a North African 
like maybe a North African Jew, because if he's in town for the Passover, he's either visiting as a Jewish person coming to Jerusalem for Passover, or Simon from Cyrene had already moved to Jerusalem and, and he's just... You know, in the Roman Empire, you could move to different cities. That was part of the advantage of the Roman Empire, is if you wanted, just like in the United States, if we want to move from Minnesota and pick up and go move to Wisconsin, we could do that tomorrow. And someone in Cyrene uh, could pick up and move to Jerusalem if they so felt like it. Um, so either way, a North African standing in Jerusalem probably stood out as the only black guy that it, within their crowd. So when it says they found a man of Cyrene, they don't call him black. I, I think this is interesting, too. The idea of race doesn't pop up until the modern era. Like, the Bible never deals with somebody's race. It never actually acknowledges that skin color is, is a defining aspect of a human being. But it does use nationality. So Simon is of Cyrene, and he will be until the day he dies, even if he lives in Jerusalem his whole life. He's of Cyrene. So I would be Sean of Minnesota, Jesus of Galilee, or Jesus of Nazareth. You take that starting town and it becomes your identity. That's where you're from. Uh, so we do some of that today, but I think today we've put far more weight on skin color than we ever should have. It should be where you're from, uh, which you can tell by an accent, which we see with the disciples where they know they're from Galilee just by an accent. Um, but it's not necessarily something that's visually identifiable because by the time of the Roman Empire, people were living in all different places from all different places. Um, so Simon by name, and they compelled him to bear the cross. Uh, it doesn't say that Simon volunteered to bear the cross. It says they made him do it. They compelled him to. Uh, Roman soldiers could ask anybody to do anything, and there wasn't really due process. <laughs> you know, you did it or you got in trouble with the Romans. So none, note this, not one of the disciples is here to volunteer to pick up the cross. The thing Jesus asked them to do. Not one of the 11 is around to do this for Jesus. So they find this guy named Cyrene. Here's the other thing about Simon Cyrene. Uh, the name does pop up later on. Uh, they're mentioned by Mark in chapter 15, verse 21. Like Mark knows this family, right? He has two sons. Alexander is a Greek name. Rufus is a Latin name. Uh, neither one of them are North African names. So Cyrene named his kids names that were familiar to this area of the world. Um, so there's kind of a unspoken story here like there's a good novel waiting to be written about an extremely honorable family um, Simon of Cyrene's kids are both named as some of the believers in the early church so Simon's kids become believers in Jesus Christ and they are willing to die for him so it is extremely likely at this point that that this interaction with Jesus had a deep effect on Simon uh, and it went right home to his kids and we see the impact of this. And what a blessing for the rest of your life as you believe in Jesus as your Savior to know you were the guy that carried his cross. Like I'm thinking Simon's got a special place in heaven. Um, and sweet relief, not because Simon was willing to, but because the Romans forced someone to carry his cross. This is for one of two reasons. Either Jesus was too weak from the beating to carry it himself or like putting on his clothes, the Roman soldiers' hearts had shifted towards Jesus. And they're like, we got to get through this. It's our orders, but we don't need to keep beating on this guy who's clearly a decent human being. And so they get somebody to carry his cross. Again, uncommon for the Roman soldiers to do that. Um, but what a blessing to be in the Bible and that that's the reason you're in the Bible. Verse 33, when they'd come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of the skull, 
I want to stop just and talk about Golgotha a second. In Latin, the word Golgotha means Calvary. So if, if we were to say this in a Latin version of the Bible, they would come to a place of the skull, Calvary. It's outside the city. Romans always picked the highest traffic gate of the city. And right outside the gate, they'd find the highest spot they could and that they would put their crucifixions there. Um, when putting down the rebellion of Spartacus, they crucified them on the entire road to Rome. And they lined the crosses up on the busiest road they could because they want people to see what happens to criminals. It's a deterrent or how they look at it. Um, so there's some issues with the traditional site. There's a big church right now on, the, on Golgotha. It's the church of Golgotha or whatever. Uh, and there's people that argue that. It's called the Hill of the Skull because it's a permanent place where crucifixions would happen. If the Jews did stonings, they would do it on this same hill. Uh, so it was likely lined with bodies that were not given the dignity of a burial. So place of the skull could be because there's, there's decaying bodies all over it. Um, Gordon's Calvary is another site. It's, it's north of the Damascus Gate, which would have been the busiest gate of the city. It frankly is one of the busier gates of the city today. Um, and then at about 500 feet north of the North Gate, there's this round top little hill. Right now there's a bus station at the bottom of it. And if you look out the, the, the Damascus Gate and you look at the bus station and move your eyes up a little bit, there is the side of the hill is kind of rock-faced like a cliff. And in that rock face, there are three indentations, which when the sun hits it right, look like two eyeballs and a mouth or a skull. And the sides of the thing kind of actually come around it and shape out a skull. It's really eerie when you see it. Gordon uh, argued um, that this was more likely the site of it. Uh, reading from his arguments, he says, I quote, that this hill makes a sort of amphitheater that's formed by the gentle slopes on the west. The whole population of the city would easily witness from the vicinity anything that takes place on the top of the cliff. The knoll is just beside the main north road. It's a likely place where Romans put it in every other town. It's visible from the city because elevation-wise, it's about 110 feet higher than the Temple Mount. So the Jews called it the house of stoning. They always did. So it would make sense that this is where the permanent posts would be for crucifixions of the Romans during this time. Early Christians um, also named this site in the first and second century. This is where they say Stephen was killed. What the weird thing is, literally there's a bus station under it right now. It is not a Catholic celebrated site. Uh, but Gordon's Calvary is one that the Protestants more and more are starting to recognize is this is where Stephen was stoned, this is where Christ was crucified. From the gate, again, you can see the side of the, the hill actually has a skull shape in it. Um, and, and right next to this hill is what we call the garden tomb, uh, which was built during this time. It was used for only one burial. It wasn't completed, so it was under construction when it was used. And it's the site that Christians have um, revered as the burial site of Jesus, which makes total sense. You're not going to have a big funeral procession with a criminal. You're going to bury him as close as you can. And this would have been a rich man's tomb and a garden tomb right next to the hill of Golgotha where they stoned people and killed people. So it's odd that the Catholics picked a completely different site. Um, but the site they picked is actually inside of Jerusalem, which is, again, really not where they killed people. Jewish tradition just didn't do that. Um, again, that's Golgotha. Verse 34, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he tasted it, he would not drink. So sour wine in the Greek is a kind of vinegar. 
Uh, the gall is the bile that they would mix with it, literally stomach bile. They would mix in with the vinegar. Um, as I like, they could also, instead of bile, and the Greek would allow for, you could mix myrrh in with this too. And Mark actually uses the word myrrh instead of gall. Um, so it, the point is, myrrh is an embalming material, and it would numb or dull senses. Think of it like a, uh, a painkiller. So you would drink this stuff, and it would numb the inside, and it would, it, it, you wouldn't pass out, but you wouldn't feel any pain either. Between the alcohol and the myrrh, basically you're embalming your insides, and it would make things more painless. This fits in a couple ways. One, um, myrrh was brought to Jesus as a gift when he was a baby, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Um, and also there's a Roman drink called Pasca, and it's hard liquor, and it's made of soured wine and, and gall that they would mix with it. So either, either the gall or the myrrh uh, would be a Roman drink called Pasca. Um, and Matthew doesn't call it Pasca. He says it's sour wine mingled with gall to drink. His audience are Jewish people, which might not know what that drink is. So he doesn't use the Latin word for it. He describes what it is because his audience is Jewish people. It's a custom for the Roman soldiers as an act of mercy that they would give this numbing drink to people if they wanted to help it to be more painless. A mean, that would be the nice Roman soldier take. The mean Roman soldier take is they would give them this numbing liquid so that they would live on the cross longer. They wouldn't go into shock as quick. So they wouldn't feel the pain of it, so then they wouldn't pass out, which made more of a display for the people. Either way, Jesus refuses it. So why would Jesus refuse something that would numb his brain to the pain? Because he's accepting the full weight and consequences of what he's getting ascribed to him. He refuses to dull the pain, even though it had to be extreme. He's not going to be dull-headed when he's supposed to be aware of what's going on. So he wouldn't drink... He faces his trial with a clear head all the way through. Verse 35, Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Verse 35, They crucified him. So this is where I say Matthew doesn't focus on this that much. It's part of a full sentence. that The topic of the sentence of verse 35 it has to do with the entire process but comes back to the fact that the soldiers divided the garments and for my, lot, for my clothing they cast lots. Matthew is trying to direct his reader not to the crucifixion and the pain and agony of it. He's trying to direct the reader to what the Roman soldiers did during and immediately following the crucifixion. And again, that's why I, I don't know if the suffering here is spiritual, but Matthew doesn't have a physical focus on what's happening to Jesus at this time. He spares the reader the details. And when we were prepping for this, Steph was dreading it because she's like, oh, I don't want to like to focus on how much agony on the cross. It's a tough thing to go through. And I think that's part of what Matthew's sparing. The story of Jesus isn't about death on the cross. The story of Jesus is about resurrection at the tomb. And so Matthew moves right past crucifixion and they, he spends just a couple words on it and then he moves on. So the crucifixion is you know, was really invented about 350 years beforehand. Uh, the idea of the crucifixion was they didn't want to curse the ground, so they would raise the body up off the ground so the ground itself wouldn't be cursed. So some argue that the Assyrians perfected this. Some argue the Babylonians did. The earliest record of use is with the Persians in 350 B.C. 
So typically, crucifixion happened with the Assyrians and Babylonians. They would crucify people after they were dead. So they would execute them, and then instead of burying them, they'd put them up on a post for display, and so the birds could see it. But it was after people were dead. The Greeks, under Alexander the Great, crucified 2,000 Tyrians. There's record of that. The Romans, however, actually... Um, gave the word crucifixion. It comes from the Latin word crux. Um, and it was any object that would impale or hang somebody, and they meant it to be excruciating. Again, the root of excruciating is crux, right? That's where that word comes from. It is the worst form of torture they could think of. So when you say excruciating pain, you're likening it to the pain that people experience on a cross. So they would use this in the field of war, Typically, it didn't have to be like a formal cross, like the Romans would just nail people to trees and they would call it crucifixion. But they perfected it because they discovered we can do this to people while they're still alive. And so the great evil of crucifixion comes into play. Apian's records say that in 71 BC, the Spartacus rebellion from Capia to Rome was 6,000 people crucified along the road. Matthew moves quickly on to dividing the garments. Um, when they took the garments off for the whipping, I think this is where these details line up, and I find that, I think that's really compelling. Matthew pointed out they took the garments off for the whipping, and then they put them back on, which means those garments are bloody, but they're still in fairly good shape. And in this ancient world, a halfway decent coat was worth money. So if you rinsed it out in the river and got the blood off, you could sell that to another Gentile or keep it for yourself. So the, the Roman soldiers weren't paid great. <laughs> it's just if they disobeyed, they got killed. Um, and if they stole, they got killed. So these opportunities for Roman soldiers to make a couple bucks here on the side, um, not uncommon amongst military personnel. So Jesus, the fact that he loses his clothes, I think Matt, the reason Matthew's pointing this out is he's crucified and he loses his clothes. He, he went to his death with absolutely nothing from this world. He didn't even go into his death with his own clothes on. So the fact that he just, he took nothing and he, kept nothing, uh, is I think part of why Matthew moves right on to that. And then he says it was spoken by the prophet. He focuses again, as he had the last three chapters, virtually every sentence is a prophecy fulfilled, every point that he makes. Uh, and it's particular here um, that, he's, that it's being accurate, that that's part of what's happening. John 10, 18, uh, Jesus uh, is in full control. It says, no one takes... My life, Jesus says, for me, but I lay it down myself. Jesus has nothing from this world, and he has full control and full power. He's accepting everything that happens to him. Verse 36 says, sitting down, they kept watch over him there. This was standard Roman protocol. If they're commanded to crucify him, then they want to prevent any interference from that happening. Roman soldiers would sit down because death could take a long time. It wasn't, so they weren't, they weren't necessarily on standing guard duty, but they were there to make sure that it was done. So this was done like a formal execution. These Roman soldiers were professionals. This is what they did for a living. Verse 37, they put over his head the accusation written against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. It's typical of Rome to put the crime over the head of a public execution uh, because this is, it's the titulus or title. Uh, this is where we get that word from, uh, that they wanted everyone to know what was done that caused this to happen. So Jewish leaders, uh, we know from the book of John, they were really enraged that this got put over Jesus' head. This is the thing they didn't like that Jesus said, that he was the Messiah. 
And so the Jewish people are like, he's not our king. He's not our Messiah. Uh, and they go to Pilate in John 19 and they complain about it. And Pilate's so upset about the whole situation, he insists on it and basically says, um, uh, basically says, I wrote it and it's going to stay that way. So the Romans wanted this to not only be humiliating to Jesus, but they wanted to humiliate all the Jews too. Hey Jews, this is your king and this is what we do to your king. Go ahead and wait. If you don't think this is your Messiah, just bring us your Messiah and this is what's going to happen to that Messiah also. So they'll have political rebellions and they'll be uh, actually pretty sizable rebellions in just a few decades and the Romans actually do put it down. There's a massive slaughter, hundreds of thousands of Jewish people uh, over a rebellion. And the, and the Romans let them know what would happen right up front. So they put, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews, formally giving him the title of king at his death. It's the same title we get with the Christmas stories in the first few chapters. Like you can see the book of Matthew coming to full circle at this point. And the focus of Matthew is more on the title that he gets than it is on the crucifixion itself. How would history be different if either group accepted him as what he was accused of? If the Jewish leaders accepted him as Messiah, how would that have changed histories? Or if the Romans actually accepted um, uh, Jesus as, as the king of the Jews and let him have Herod's position, how would history be different? Or even better, what if Rome accepted Jesus as their Messiah and the Jews accepted Jesus as their king? Like, how would that all have played out? But I... It's, it's tough to ask those questions because it played out the way it did because God was in control. He meant all of this for truth. Behold your king. He was put on display so the Jews could see him and they saw him. Their king is one that has been bruised and beaten and taken the stripes for their iniquity. Their king actually stands in their place like any good father would. Then two robbers were crucified with him, verse 38. One on the right, another on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself if you're the son of God. Come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also. By the way, the chief priests should have been nowhere near an execution. This is Passover. They should have been a long distance away from any dead person. So the fact that they're there to mock Jesus, well, they already gave up their priesthood in, in law. So... What difference does it make? But they shouldn't be anywhere near this. Mocking with the scribes and the elders said, he saved others, he himself he cannot save. If he's the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now if he will have him. For if he said, I'm the son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Jesus then is put in the middle of sinners, to the right of him, to the left of him. He's got sinners below him. He's literally been put in the center of these verses from Matthew. He's got sinners all surrounding him. And it's not just the robbers on the cross to his right and left. It's the people that are doing it. Each of these groups is mentioned. Um, those who passed by, verse 39. Um, the, uh, the chief priests in verse 41 the scribes and the elders are there too. Um, and they all together are mocking him. Verse 38 mentions the robbers. Verse 44 mentions the robbers. And as we see Matthew bookending that, he's implying strongly without saying it that everything in between are the same sinners and criminals. All the people passing by are part of this. 
the owners were crucified with him and said the same thing. So in the Gospels, talk about a moment with one of these two where that, that person chooses to follow Jesus. That would have happened after the mockery. And again, seeing Jesus' response to all this. So Jesus gets put in the middle of the worst kind of people. Has a title over his head and sinners to his left, right, and beneath him. It says over his head. There's two kinds of crosses. There's a cross where the beam sits on the top of the post. And there's a cross where the, 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 the beam sits towards the middle of the post. So they would have had notches in different places. Depending on how heavy the person was, if the soldiers could lift that beam up to the top, they tended to put it as high as they could. But the fact that there is a title over his head um, speaks to the fact that they wouldn't have hung Jesus quite on that top notch, which is why when we have crosses on our neck, we actually have a cross where the post goes up over the cross beam. It also, so that's just one of those little details where it puts the king of the Jews was over his head. Um, we kind of see that that's, that's why we get the shape of the cross where it is because they would have then hung the criminal accusation on top of that. That's why the Greek Orthodox have two little cross beams. One of the cross beams is the king of the Jews. The other cross beam is where Jesus was hung on. Why we have a, a lowercase t and not a capital T for our religious imagery. So they are crucified with him. God uses this image as two options. You can die with sin or you can die with the Son of God. Uh, Luke 23 is where the other one of the, one of the criminals becomes saved and Jesus says, you'll be with me in heaven. Matthew makes no mention of that. I think he's trying to show the universal re rejection of the king. And verse 38, Matthew used the phrase, they blasphemed him. So, Matthew believes when he's writing this that Jesus is no less than God himself because the only being that can be blasphemed is God. And so when Matthew's saying they blaspheme Jesus, they're, they're treating God as less than God, which is blasphemy. They wag their heads is another interesting phrase. Uh, in the Greek, it's kineo, or to cause something to be set in motion or moved. When I mock people, I don't really wag my head when I do it. Like that's an odd little phrase. Um, but they're so moved in this killing of Jesus that apparently they're dancing or bopping their heads like they're listening to music or there's some wagging of head that happens. It's a really odd phrase. Mark uses the word, word railed. They railed on him. Again, a weird phrase. They were doing something that was hard to describe with words. But the mockery is exactly uh, what was going on here. The use of... Um, and again, all the prophecy that gets fulfilled. In verse 48, as son of God, um, Jesus said, do you not believe that I'm the father and the father in me? The words that I speak to you, I don't speak on my own authority, but the father who dwells in me does the works. Jesus claimed that God lived in him and that he and God were one. There was an indwelling. In verse uh, 42, they claim he saved others. Again, all the things they used to mock Jesus are exactly what Jesus was. So they mocked him because he said he was son of God. They mocked him because he saved people. people, And they admit it. They say, you save people, save yourself. Um, we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as the Savior of the world. This is exactly, Jesus didn't get killed because of a false accusation. He got killed because of true accusations. He was the Savior. He was the Son of God. Verse 42, they say, you're the King of Israel. 
They took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The king of Israel is what they called him back in, when he entered town. So they killed him because they, he was the king of Israel and he, and he accepted that title. He trusted in God. If you trust in God, then you should be there. He was a faithful man. Notice the groups of the people. The robbers are bookending it. The people, the priests. Verse 42, and we will believe him. That's a lie. He did all these things and they didn't believe him. But if you can save yourself now, then we'll believe you. That's nonsense. Because Jesus rises from the grave and there are a number of people that still don't believe him. So Jesus ignores all of these things because he's a willing sacrifice and they're tempting him and he, he rejects the temptations just like he did with Satan in the wilderness. This mockery, he just doesn't respond to it. If you do this, then we'll believe. That's a conditional thing and conditional belief isn't belief. If this happens, I'll believe in God. Nonsense. Either you believe in God or you don't. So we see this kind of mockery that I just don't think has changed today. People still react this way to Jesus. Well, if Jesus makes lightning bolts come from the sky, then I'll believe that there's a God. Nonsense. You'll only believe God when you want to believe God. I could make lightning bolts come out my earballs, but that doesn't mean that you're going to believe in God when that happens. You're just going to think I did a trick. <laughs> Even the robbers, uh, everyone reviles Jesus in Matthew's account. The world, Jesus, to the world, Jesus is lower than the robbers. And again, legitimately, I think Jesus would have been on, on the lower beam. The robbers would likely have been on the top beam, right? And that, that accusation would have been hung around their necks. So Jesus is, is lower even than the robbers in one sense. The scorn doesn't define the status. It never has. In fact, scorn is typically an indicator of something good and light. There's a rejection here that's worse than human scorn. There's an isolation that's even deeper than that. And as Matthew explains the scorn of humanity, he goes right into explaining the scorn of, of the earth and the heavens themselves. Verse 45. Now in the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness all over the land. I'd be like three o'clock to six o'clock in our terms. Darkness all over the land. Not only is the light abandoning earth, it's been snuffed out. So there's this idea of he's getting all of humanity rejects him, but then the light goes out on the planet. Like he's got to die in darkness. John 1, 1 through 5. This is the very beginning of the book of John. Listen to how John defines Jesus as the light, <laughs> right? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And he was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through him, and without him nothing, there, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus is God. He's the life of God. right? He's an aspect of God that we can see and interact with. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. But for three hours, the darkness won. We're going to leave off there today, and we're going to pick up uh, where we, we go. And next week, I'm going to lead off and really talk about this darkness because this darkness wasn't just seen in Jerusalem for three hours. It was seen all over the planet for three hours. And we have some really cool references that are records of this period of darkness on this particular day. It was an odd darkness. It's not just an eclipse. Like the light went out for a period of time. Uh, so this is an absolute miracle in verse 45 that Matthew accounts for and makes a reference to. So we'll pick up with that darkness next week uh, when we finish the chapter.
Dear Lord, we thank you for your blessing and we thank you for the gift that you willingly gave, that you, you gave your life for us. Lord, we have no way to express that we too at periods in our life we've made a mockery of you, Jesus, because we haven't honored your law. And you say if we love you, we do your commandments. And we've all fallen short of doing your commandments. We've all failed to do it. So in the same way that Judas ran off in despair and Peter has gone into hiding as a coward, Lord, there's been times when we've been ashamed of proclaiming your name to the people around us. Lord, there's times when we um, don't do the work you've given to us. Lord, there's times when we wipe and wash our hands of guilt, but in doing that, we're not taking responsibility for what you've put in front of us, like Pilate. Lord, it doesn't matter which character in this story you look at. Boy, there's ways, Lord, where I can think when I've done those things to you. And I'm so sorry. I'm so deeply sorry, Lord. Lord, we know you died on the cross for the joy set before you. You're, you were doing all of this for a reason. And it was to give us a chance to come to you and repent and turn of our ways and make you our king and our savior. Matthew was establishing a kingship as he wrote this. So Lord, we just accept you as the king of our life. And we are your servants. We are your hands and feet. And Lord, we'll do whatever you want us to do and wherever you want us to go and however you want us to get there. Lord, just give us your way and give us your, your path. And Lord, may your Holy Spirit be on our lives. So as we leave here today, we are prepared to listen to you. And Lord, may the images of your suffering and rejection and crucifixion, may those things stick with us too. That we don't just gloss over those things. Uh, we remember what happened. We remember that you did these things willingly. And Lord, that you were given the title of king. And Lord, that everything's been done according to the law and under the law. Lord, we pray that like Simon of Cyrene, uh, that we can pick up your cross daily and follow you. And Lord, that has, we don't have to be compelled to do it. We do it willingly just like you did it. And we do it because we want to. Lord, may the Holy Spirit be with us and keep us and bless us this week. In Jesus' name. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.